Excited to be here this morning, always excited and appreciate the opportunity and privilege to study God's Word with you, and I'm excited this morning to begin a new series, recently completed a five-part series on the book of Philippians, a wonderful book, and been into book studies. I've got several on my radar, but this morning I want to begin a series on First and Second Peter with a theme of living as an exile. And within that umbrella, I see some themes throughout these epistles, three in particular that we want to explore in this series. Number one, separation from the world, sanctification, holiness, separation, submission, and suffering, which is kind of the context of what they were dealing with of, of the book at large. And so we'll begin with what may be a three-part mini-series on separation, on holiness. We're going to talk about being holy, remaining holy. But this morning, we want to start by talking about how we become holy in the new birth. And so we'll start in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1 to introduce this epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And some translations translate exile, stranger, pilgrim, alien. Jesus prayed in John 17 for those who are in the world, not of the world. And so we're not talking about E.T. or a citizen of Roswell. We're talking about somebody who is in a place that's not home. Our citizenship is in heaven, we studied in the book of Philippians. Hebrews 11 talks about the heroes of faith. And verse 13 says they embraced the promises of God and acknowledge that they were strangers and aliens on this earth. We have new values, new language, new custom, a new appearance as a result of the new birth. And so the audience is elect exiles, the five Roman provinces in what's now modern-day Turkey. And so an interesting question that I don't think has doctrinal significance, it's not going to affect our application, but are they exiles because they are Jews of the Jewish dispersion and captivity that were taken away from Palestine and did not return home? Are they exiles because they're Jews living in Turkey when their homeland is in Palestine? Or are they exiles because they're Christians living in exile, living in, in the world when their citizenship is in heaven? And I believe that second explanation is the most plausible and I want to briefly give you a couple of reasons for that. First Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Peter quotes from Hosea, same quote Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9 to argue that the Gentiles have become the true Israel, the real Israel. Danny recently talked about that. When you look at some of the descriptions of behavior in this epistle, it seems to me that it's Gentile behavior, Gentile immorality and not Jewish behavior. Additionally, notice here in this passage a connection with our election and our exile status. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. We were once not a people, but now you are God's people. And now because we have become God's people, we are now in exile. And there's nothing in here about unconditional election. God predestinated a plan. 
that those who conform to the image of His Son are elected. You know who the elect are? Whosoever will. You know who the non-elect are? Whosoever won't. And so we are elected through the gospel by being conformed to the image of Jesus, and now we become an exile. The Bible was consistent in teaching that we are born again into the kingdom, and when that happens, we become a citizen of heaven. We become an alien when we're born again, and now we're no longer at home in this world. And so I want to ask three questions this morning regarding the new birth. Number one, why do we need to be born again? Number two, how do we become born again? And finally, what are the results of being born again, which will lead into the rest of our series? And so we start with why Jesus said you must be born again. Think about the word must, the word Jesus selected must. He said you cannot see the kingdom if you are not born again. And so that ought to be reason enough for us to be born again. The only Christians are born-again Christians. You hear people talk today about a born-again Christian versus other times. There's no such thing as a non-born-again Christian. Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, etc. all teach that the only Christians are born-again Christians. And so that's why we need to be born again. But as we look at some of the teachings in 1 Peter on why we need to be born again, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24, "...who his own self bear our sins..." in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So we need to be born again, not only to be released from the guilt and the consequence of our sins, but also to be freed from the power of sin. In the new birth now, we are free not to sin, not to continue in sin, not to live in sin. That's the result of the new birth. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And so we need to be born again to be saved from sin. We also need to be born again to be saved for glory. 1 Peter 5, verse 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Verse 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. We are saved for glory, ultimately God's glory. And then another reason I think we need to be born again is because of the value of our salvation, because of the price that was paid to make our salvation a reality. I think there's an argument within that that should motivate us to be born again. 1 Peter chapter 1, in these two verses, I believe we have five arguments, five uh, facts that attest to the value of our salvation He starts by talking about the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. Don't miss and don't fail to appreciate that Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ. Christ knew about His suffering and His death as far back as the plan of salvation was foreknown. He was willing and ready and preparing that far back. And so you weren't just loved on Good Friday. You've been loved every day. You've been loved forever. Christ predicted Christ's suffering and death, and that testifies to the value of you and the value of your salvation. The prophets longed to see it searching what or what manner of time these things were to happen. And this searching, this inquisition, this this longing for centuries testifies to the value of our salvation. Peter, I think, alludes to Isaiah 53, a beautiful prophecy of the suffering Messiah. You think Isaiah wanted to know about Isaiah 53? You think Daniel wanted to know about the prophecies in Daniel that are just absolutely phenomenal and kingdoms and timelines and ultimately about the eternal kingdom? 
the stone not made with hands. And this longing, this searching, this inquiring testifies to the value of our salvation. They were told in response to their inquiries, what were they told? Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things. The fact that the prophets were serving us testifies to the value of our salvation. The Holy Ghost was sent down from heaven to bring us the gospel, to inspire their words, to bring us the truth. And the work of the Spirit sent from heaven testifies to the value of our salvation. And finally, which things the angels desire to look into. Angels long to look into these things. And the concept in the Greek is essentially they're, they're stooping over, they're, they're leaning in. They're that interested, and if angels are that interested and that excited about our salvation, how much more excited and interested should we be in our own salvation and in the salvation of other people? And so that's why you must be born again. Now we want to talk about how do we become born again. This is probably the most controversial question concerning the new birth. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So He's begotten us. He's caused us to be born again. Where did this living hope come from? What's its basis? What's its foundation? Can we give an answer of the reason of the hope that's now within us as a result of the new birth? Can we give a testimony to that? God wants us to be able to do that not only for our own benefit, to ensure that we know that we have been born again, but also for the benefit of others. And so as we look at this process of new birth, it starts with parentage. We noticed in the first couple of verses, he talks about the work of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It starts with this mercy, this initiative, this willingness, this grace That's the source and the foundation of our new birth. It leads to a begetting through the Word. We noticed in verse 12, preach the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. He goes on to say in verse 22, seeing you have purified your souls, how? In obeying the truth through what? The Spirit who inspired the truth, who brought us the truth, who brought us the gospel. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. How? By the Word of God. He goes on to say, this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. There are no born-again Christians where the seed of the kingdom has not gone. You won't find Christians where the gospel, where missionaries have not gone. And I find that significant. I find that very telling. I find that very obvious. Mercy of God, the resurrection of Jesus is communicated through the gospel, through the word of truth, and that affects a response There's no gospel without the resurrection. And the resurrection wouldn't be gospel if it wasn't proclaimed. Would not beget a living hope if it stayed a secret. God won't command us to hope in something and not give a reason for that hope. Not give us a message to hope in. And the message is Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose the third day. Chapter 2. He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We read He had called us into eternal glory. We see the word called throughout the epistles of Peter. Peter tells us that we're called, but he doesn't tell us how we are called. Paul, though, writing to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, says we're called. He has called us by the gospel. And that leads and results 
dependent upon our response to this new birth. First Peter 1, he says we're not redeemed. Salvation was not made possible by corruptible things, by money, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's what caused our new birth. That's what redeemed us. That's what washes away our sins, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He goes on to say that God raised him up from the dead. There's the resurrection. There's the gospel. And gave him glory that your faith and your hope might be in God. And goes on to say that we're born again through this word of truth, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most famous passage on the new birth is John chapter 3. Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus and says that you must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom. And Nicodemus is confused and asks, how can I be born a second time? Do I need to climb back in my mother's womb? And Jesus said, that's not the kind of birth I'm talking about. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Marvel not that I say you must be born again. For centuries, there was no controversy regarding this passage. There was no misunderstanding. Early Christians all understood that it was an clear and obvious reference to baptism. You can go read the writings of the early Christians in the first few hundred centuries after Jesus said this and how they talk about the new birth and the connection with water baptism. No controversy until fairly recently with doctrines like Calvinism and unconditional election where all of a sudden baptism was viewed as a work and an attempt to earn our salvation through some kind of action on our own when we're in fact saved by the work of Jesus. And what essentially happened is you had one extreme, you had a corruption and a perversion of New Testament baptism, which is married to faith, is a response of faith, but it was turned into the water had mystical powers, baptismal regeneration, water salvation. You had baptism without faith and infant baptism. And so in seeing that perversion, many responded to an opposite extreme and tried to completely remove baptism from the plan of salvation entirely. And so some of the most common attempts to explain how water doesn't mean water in John 3, that water doesn't mean baptism in John 3, many will say, and I've heard this multiple times, shocked me the first time, many will say that it's amniotic fluid. That's part of the birth process. And if that's what Jesus is saying, he's essentially saying before you can be born spiritually, you have to exist. You have to have been born physically. And that was the very, ironically, that was the very misconception and misunderstanding that Nicodemus had. How do I get back in my mother's womb? And if water doesn't mean water here, how do we understand any words in the Bible? Fundamental rule of interpretation, interpret literally unless there's a good reason or you're told that it's symbolic. So if water doesn't mean water, how do we interpret any of these words? What does water mean in this context? You go on to read later in this very chapter that John was baptizing in a certain place because there was much water there. Was he baptizing there because there was much water or much amniotic fluid? So some will say, well, the water is the Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit is described with water. But if that's the case, Jesus would be saying, unless you're born of Spirit and the Spirit, that would be awfully redundant. Two elements, one birth. Not two elements and two births. Not a direct operation of the Spirit apart from the Word that happens inside of you in another birth months later as a public display. The Bible says nothing about that. And so in response to this idea that baptism is somehow a work that we do to earn our salvation, I want you to notice what Paul said about the new birth in Titus chapter 3. 
He begins by saying again that we're saved from sin because of our sins, because of our lust, our pleasures, our disobedience, our foolishness, our hate. By the kindness and love of God our Savior, it's appeared to us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy. Same word Peter used, abundant mercy. It's made the new birth a reality. He has saved us, how? By, Greek word dia, which means through, via, the medium, saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I want you to notice here that the washing of regeneration, a reference to baptism, included in the plan of salvation, does not mean that we are not saved by the grace and mercy of God. Those things are not mutually exclusive or incompatible. Titus chapter 3, just like John chapter 3, was understood for centuries without controversy. The washing of regeneration was a reference to baptism. And notice that if we aren't saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, but we are saved by the washing of regeneration, which is baptism, then baptism is not a work of righteousness, which we have done. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 2, it's having faith in the operation or the work of God who raised Jesus from the dead and raises us to walk in newness of life. Notice the Greek word again, dia, by, or through. And I also am... Curious, why did the Holy Spirit connect the word washing, lutron in the Greek, with regeneration, which is cleansing from sin? Why would washing be connected with cleansing from sin? That's the words the Holy Spirit selected for a reason. Lutron, the washing, means a bath or a laver. The only other time we find it is in Ephesians 5, which we're going to see in a moment, which also has a cleansing in view through baptism. But many see in this the shadowing of the Old Testament. You had to wash in a laver before you could enter into the Holy of Holies. It's now the church, the kingdom. We have to be washed in the blood of Jesus. We have to be cleansed before we can enter into the kingdom of God, into the realm or the state of salvation. And notice the word regeneration is a compound word in the Greek. Palin meaning again, genesis meaning birth, born again. The exact same thing Jesus was talking about in John 3 regarding the role of water in the new birth and our salvation. I think if we put these different texts on the new birth together, each of them become even clearer. Jesus said in John 3, spirit, water, result, enter the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit were you baptized into one body, spirit, baptized, body. Ephesians 5, where we also found the word lutron, word, Washing of water gave himself for the church. Titus 3, we just saw the Holy Spirit, the washing of regeneration, which is the washing of water, baptism, saved, which is what the church literally means, the called out of sin, the called out of the world. We do not enter into this realm, this state, this kingdom of salvation until we've been washed, until we've received this regeneration through baptism, through the Spirit which inspired the Word, 1 Peter 1 which bought us the gospel truth that affects this response. 1 Peter 1, verse 2, we read that about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Sprinkling of blood, which is a constant theme throughout the law of Moses. You have atonement, purification, and participation in the blessings of that covenant, 
were predicated upon the application of the blood of a sacrificial lamb, upon the altar and upon the people. The covenant with God was ratified with blood. Notice Exodus 24 is a great example of that. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Very similar language to what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28 in instituting the Lord's Supper. This is the blood of the new covenant. Notice also in Exodus 24, this connection between the people's obedient response and the application of the blood. Just like what we see in 1 Peter 1. We have been purified by the blood of Jesus. How? By obeying the truth. By obeying the gospel. And that's what allowed us to be born again. The blood of Christ is what redeems us. The blood of Christ is what purifies us. But that blood is not applied until we obey the truth. Until we obey the gospel and are born of water and spirit. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, perhaps one of the clearest most obvious verses on the role of baptism in our salvation, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was up preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved. How? By dia, through, saved by water. The like figure, wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer or an appeal to God for a good conscience, a clean conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, that word by or through means the circumstances one finds themselves as a result of something that's been affected. The medium, water was the medium that God used to allow Noah and his family to escape the fate of the lost. And Peter said that's the same medium God allows us to escape the fate of the lost. Water bore up the ark. It was the means of floating the boat and bearing them harmless. This phrase, by the resurrection of Jesus, powerfully impresses upon us the essentiality of baptism. Because again, many react and respond today, we're saved by what Jesus did, not what we do. And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely correct. But notice that Peter and Paul both teach that we can be saved by water, by washing of regeneration through the blood of Jesus, that salvation can be completely dependent upon the mercy and grace and blood of Jesus Christ and still require conditions that must be met for us to accept and receive that gift. Just like the children of Israel were given conditions to accept the gift and take possession of the promised land. It was free. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. But there were many conditions that they had to meet, starting with Jericho, to take possession of the gift of God. We are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear in teaching that we're saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. Many verses just say the resurrection. That's a figure of speech known as synecdoche, where a part is put for the whole. Resurrection includes the death and burial. There's no resurrection without the death and burial. The New Testament is clear in so many passages that we do not access the benefits of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that saves us until we are baptized. Water is an essential element in the new birth, Jesus says. And the only sense in which water is ever mentioned in regards to a new life is when speaking of water baptism for the remission of sins. And so this leads to our final question, which will lead into the rest of our series. 
What are the results of being born again? That's really what we want to concentrate on. What are the results? What's the fruit? What's the proof that we're born again Christians? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul tells the Corinthians, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things have become new in the new birth. And so as we look at the new things Peter talks about, that are the result of this new birth, we have a new authority. He begins the letter, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the authority of Jesus Christ, I'm God's spokesperson. I'm an authorized representative of God. As he goes on to talk about submitting, he says you do that because you submit to the King of kings and Lord of lords who's told you to do that. That's why you submit. As to the Lord, as servants of God, because we have a new authority. We have a new identity. Birth speaks to a transition, a change of state. We have a new relationship, a new family, a new name, a new identity. According to Jesus, the goal of the new birth is entrance into the kingdom where we receive this new identity. The new birth is when we, the point when this union with the resurrected Christ occurs. And at that point, we're given a new constitution, the constitution of heaven, perfect constitution of heaven that allows us to form a more perfect union with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the result of that now, with this constitution, we have a new mission, a new motivation, a new perspective, new passions. He writes in chapter 1, verse 13, preparing your minds for action. Death to sin occurs in the mind. We're no longer blinded by deceitful desires. Our eyes have been opened in the new birth to see through them. We know better because we know God better. We're no longer blind to the surpassing worth of knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ. In the new birth, we've come to believe and know that Jesus is worth more than money, pleasure, recreation, life itself. And this renewal of the Spirit is a renewing of the mind. Romans 12, Ephesians 4. It's not just a washing of the body, but it's a cleansing of the conscience. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. We have a new sensibility as a result of the new birth. Living creatures sense their environment. So things that in realities that were previously invisible or not sensed, we now sense, we now see clearly. We have new views, new values, new beliefs, new convictions. We're not perfect as a result of the new birth, but we have a new response to sin. We have a new perspective on life. When we didn't know God and didn't love God, we had deceitful desires that are now former desires. Not that we don't battle anymore. Not that we don't mess up, but we don't live in it. We don't practice it. It's not who we are fundamentally anymore. It's not what we want fundamentally anymore as a result of the new birth. It's not where our heart is. My passions have become his passions as a result of the new birth. I'm in the family business. Chapter 2 says, as newborn babes, the result of being born again, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The mission that we be living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. For what purpose? What's the mission? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a new faith, a new hope, a new love, a new joy. We've talked about this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And I want to tell you, you will not find 
this type of inheritance anywhere else. All other inheritances that you might have in this life are not incorruptible. They do fade away. They aren't reserved in heaven for you. We're kept, inheritance kept by the power of God. God does His part perfectly. That's good news. But notice our response through faith for salvation. Our faith is tested in the context of their suffering that we're going to talk about. Tried by fire. May be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation or appearing or return of Jesus, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith that the gospel truth, faith that God's word lives and abides forever, he goes on to say in the next verses. This living hope cleans out hoping in grass and flowers and earth. The new birth gives rise to this living hope. And what made that living hope possible, what makes it a reality in our life, is God's great mercy and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through. No mercy, no resurrection, no new birth. No new birth, no living hope. So if my new birth is made possible by the abundant mercy and grace of God and by the resurrection of Jesus, that should humble me and that should fill me with a confident, earnestly expectant hope, unshakable hope. I don't deserve this. Nobody deserves this. I didn't earn this. Nobody can earn this. And that should radically transform the way we think, the way we speak, the way we live. I don't deserve, you fill in the blank. All these blessings God has poured into my life, I am thankful. I am grateful in the new birth. And the result is praise Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship, we praise God, we express that gratitude as a result of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We have this love and this sincere love and a fervent love from a pure heart as a result of this new birth. And we have a new way of responding to adversity. You know, we have a reason to grieve every day because we live in a broken world. But because of the new birth, we have a better reason to rejoice every day. The new birth radically changes the relationship between joy and grief, joy and sorrow. We have a hope, we have a joy, as we've talked about, Philippians, that's there regardless of circumstances. And that's only made possible by the new birth. We have a new spirit sanctified by the spirit. Chapter two, the result of the new birth in chapter one Wherefore, laying aside malice, guile, hypocrisy, envies, evil speakings. That's not who we are anymore. It's not our spirit anymore. We have this hidden man of the heart, a meek and quiet spirit. talking about submission. Finally, all of you be subject. All of you submit to each other and be clothed with humility. We have a new way we see, value, and treat others. We have a new way we see, value, and treat God as a result of the new birth. We have a new humble, submissive, selfless, Attitude, that's the result of the new birth. The new birth has given us an attitude adjustment. And finally, new life. So ultimately what the new birth results in, we have new life. And you go look at these new birth passages, often Paul and Peter and whoever is writing to people who have already been baptized, already been, and he's telling them, remember your baptism. Remember who you are. Remember your new birth. Remember your baptism every day and the way you live your life. We're dead to sin. We died 
with Christ. We were buried with Christ in baptism. We were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, to seek things that are above. We're dead to sin. We don't live any longer in it. We've put off the old man and put on the new man as a result of the new birth. That process of renewal that began at baptism has to continue every day through our sanctification in the life of a Christian. Titus 3, washing and regeneration, what's the result? Be careful to maintain good works. John writes in 1 John that those who have been born again do not sin. The concept is not you never mess up. You never commit a sin for the rest of your life, but we don't practice sin. We don't live in sin anymore. Why? He says, because the seed abides in him. That seed of the kingdom that begot us to this living hope that we responded to the gospel in obedience, that seed as it's within us continues to transform and change our life. 1 Peter 1, what's the purpose? Work of the Godhead for unto obedience. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, be holy as I am holy. We saw in chapter 2, verse 1, laying aside, we've put off that old man, we've put off the old attitude, the old way of thinking, the old way of living, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. He says in chapter 4, we've armed ourselves with the mind of Christ. That's where death to sin occurs. We've ceased from sin. We don't live in sin. We don't practice sin. Living in the lust of men, but now for the will of God, we've wasted enough of our time in the lust of the world, lust of men. Now we've changed and we've transformed in such a way that hope is so evident that people are asking us about it. You've changed. Something's happened to you. And they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation or debauchery. Because you are now a stranger, <laughs> they think you strange. And so this will lead into the rest of our series. Next time, Lord willing, we're going to talk about being holy as He is holy. What does that mean? And then later, how do we remain holy? And then eventually, submission and suffering, as it also relates to our new birth. But as we prepare to offer an invitation, I just want to point out again, Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, etc., all taught that you must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God, period. And not only can you be born again, not only must you be born again, you can be born again. No matter how messed up you are, no matter what you've done, Never underestimate the power of the new birth to completely and radically transform people. That's what the new birth's all about. Peter, Paul, <laughs> etc. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? The gospel must not just be believed, it must be obeyed. And if you need to obey the gospel this morning, we offer this invitation. Be buried with him in baptism. Be washed in the blood. Be resurrected to walk in newness of life. It's the most important, best decision you'll ever make in your life. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And you can leave here with a living hope and an incorruptible inheritance and a reservation in heaven for you. Maybe you're here and you've done that previously, but maybe you need to remember your baptism. And remember your new birth and the what, 
the results of that new birth, the fruit that should be evident in your life that's the result of the new birth. If we can pray for you, if we can encourage you in that, we're ready to do that. As we offer an invitation, I want to give one more reason. You should be born again this morning if you're subject to this call. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. If you need to respond to that invitation, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing together.